Well, good morning. My name is Hank. Um, we'll be reading out of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we will start at uh, verse 13 all the way through to chapter 10, uh, verse 20. So it's on page 669. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while, while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stone may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked, madness, and fools multiply words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness the rafters sag. Because of idle hands the house leaks. At le a feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts. Or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird in the sky may carry your words. And a bird on the wing may repeat what you said. Or what you say. And then the last section would be Colossians, it's on page 1184, verse 15. Sorry, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell amongst you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your, in your hearts. And whatever you do, whatever in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
Uh, good morning, everyone. What a kind of a treat to be up here today after so long, such a break from preaching. And it's been such a treat to be sitting in the pews and um, hearing Grant open the book of Ecclesiastes to it. I'm just get, glad I get one shot at it. It's really exciting. Um, but what a treat it's been. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way this word opens um, the reality of people up to us and our own hearts. Uh, Father, knowing ourselves more truly, we pray we'd come to know you more deeply and our Lord Jesus especially. Uh, Speak now, Father, and uh, open our ears to hear your words. Amen. Uh, Wisdom isn't scarce. It never was. The average bookshelf of a psych major at Cumberland Community College will yield all the wisdom that was ever necessary to end war, teach kindness, face death, sprout honesty like flowers. Wisdom isn't scarce. I read these words this week and expected this most practical of American writers to go on and outline, therefore, how we could all just take a book off the shelf on peace or kindness or honesty and put it into action just like that, simple as you like. Um, after all, I remember when the internet first came in, yeah, I'm old enough to remember, and uh, I remember the early flush of kind of tech optimists saying, um, you wait and see, knowledge in the hand of every man. Um, there would be a golden age of competence and um, glory and wisdom and peace. Do you remember that? It lasted about that long. For all the knowledge in the world, wisdom seems sort of scarcer than ever and harder to gain. You've got to ask the question, for all the knowledge in the world, why can't we just put some of it, even just the more obvious wisdom, into play in life? And the writer who wrote those first words went on to write this. He said, we have everything we need, don't know what the hell it is, don't want it, won't remind each other and refuse to listen. Pretty serious indictment. But of himself, he says, but what I am really good at is pretending that I am searching for wisdom. I don't want it, but I can can mount a pretty good pretense of looking like I'm looking for it. Uh, Ecclesiastes, as you know, is a book searching for wisdom. Uh, In it, its teacher goes looking for wisdom. He sets off to find it and discovers he's fairly alone in that search, but he really goes after it. And in chapter 9, he comes across a particular example of wisdom that greatly impresses him, and guess what? It's an example of how much people will willfully ignore wisdom. Not the wisdom is scarce, it's available, it's there. It even has impact and outcomes, but nonetheless can be readily ignored. And, and you see that example in verse 13 to 15. It's, it's how wisdom saves the city. It says this, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. I'd love to tell you the name of that man, but I can't. That's the point. I don't know it. Neither do you. None of us care. Uh, The writer of that uh, first comment about the um, abundance of wisdom and uh, the kind of way in which we we pretend to seek for it but may not really want it 
ends up on his knees at the end of his writing, praying a prayer to God. See what you think about this prayer. He says, Preserve me, God, at least from the pretense that I am searching, for I am lost by choice, and all the evidence suggests that I relish it. He's saying, I don't want wisdom. I want its opposite. I'm happy to fake wanting wisdom, but actually I enjoy the fruits of folly. When all the shouting of life is done, people will remember many loud voices, much higher drama, and yet few of us may really have heard the voice of the wise, not because wisdom is scarce, but because we just don't want to hear it. But Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 says we don't need to be like that. We can live in a different city. We don't need to be like that city. And ask us to lean in and listen. It says, verse 17, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You might save a city by power of force. You might build a life of success by power and might, but better the quiet whisper of the wise than the boom of a cannon or the force of an irresistible personality. Ecclesiastes 10 asks us today to consider who is speaking into our lives. Who is speaking into your life? Who are you listening to? Who has the lock on the frequency of the radio of your mind? It's a very good question. And among all that noise, do you have the bandwidth? Do you have the tuning? Do you have the attentiveness to hear quiet words of wisdom overlooked by most? Well, Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 are full of irony. We're going to get into chapter 10 largely. Very strangely, having said, there was a wise guy who spoke quietly. It then takes us in chapter 10, not to the quiet wise guy so we can meet him, but far away from him. Having said there's wisdom, it kind of gets us to appreciate wisdom by taking us to its opposite, where we see the obviousness of fools. And uh, all of chapter 10 outlines that. It shows us the obviousness of fools, verse 1 to 3. shows us fools in high places, verse 4 to 7 and 17 to 20. And then it shows us that lot, while lots of life is not obvious, the outcome of foolishness always is, the verses in between. Let me take you through it. Firstly, the teacher starts with the obviousness of fools. Chapter 10, verse 1. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. I grew up in a tough enough country town. Uh, my wife grew up in a tough city suburb, and we both lived in a very tough Sydney suburb for many years. And one of the marks of all these places is a thing I called, um, called fight walking. Um, you've heard of jaywalking, that's, that's an actual offence. You've heard of sleepwalking, that, that's a malady. Fight walking is often undiagnosed, but when you, if you ever see it, you'll know it. Except you don't really see it. Fight walking happens when you hear someone coming around the block before you see them. And uh, I'll tell you, when you do see them, this is how it'll look. It'll be one person walking fast, furiously fast. And it'll be a little bit of time before you see another person coming around the block after them. And, and there'll be a large sound, a lot of, lot of shouting. And at a certain point down the block, they'll meet up again. And they might even broker a temporary peace for a couple of seconds before the other person will take off again, maybe in the other direction now, 
head down, furious, leaving a trail of expletives to the other, for the other to follow like a breadcrumb crumb of like horror in a maze of stupidity. That's fight walking. Have you seen it? And when it happens, you just want to cross the road or shut your door or go and give them a hug uh, or go home, shut your door and give your kids a hug and pray they never turn out to do anything like that on a public street. It's an awful thing. Uh, Proverbs says, like, um, a city whose walls are broken down is the person without self-control. And that's exactly what it looks like. Uh, and you can see the foolishness uh, in this walk. This is the original, if you're a Monty Python fan, the original ministry of silly walks. But it doesn't just belong in tough suburbs. Um, I've seen versions of it swagger with a latte in its hand. And there are many species of it. And the point of the chapter is obvious that folly is actually very clearly seen. You can just see it in a person's walk. Uh, the horrifying thing is that verse 1 and 2 tell us you don't even need much folly to make your whole city stink. Just a little folly will sour a big bunch like so said the dead fly in the good perfume, verse 1. And verse 2 tells us that even when the wise and the fool take just a couple of steps together, even just a few steps will reveal they're going in exactly opposite directions. Point's obvious, isn't it? In a kind of cartoonish way we're being shown that folly just it announces itself. It makes itself so obvious. It's graphically obvious. Now stop for a moment and consider your heroes. Consider the people you follow. Uh, weigh your influences, or if you're under 30, weigh your influencers, which is an actual job title now. And if you've ever seen an influencer, you'll, worry why, you'll wonder why anyone would follow them. But if you ever see their Instagram account, you'll see that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gullible, vulnerable people do. Now, who are you following? And if um, what you're thinking of now, that person and their way of life or that leader and their manner or whatever it is, if it stinks a little, then it's not too late to turn around or unfollow them, to shut the door, cross the road. Because it's so obvious, isn't it? It's so obvious. Why follow a silly walk? That's verse 1 to 3. Secondly, he says, I mean, if it's so obvious, why do people do it? Well, part of the answer is because actually fools rise to high places. They become leaders. And leaders, and you know, you end up leading them, you're following them. Verse 4 to 7. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offences to rest. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler... Fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I've seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Uh, just to be clear on the details here, we kind of struggle with rich and slaves. In fact, we're sort of pre-programmed to think a bit negatively of the rich and very positively of slaves. But for this, to get this picture right, you've got to reverse that. Why? Well, the rich aren't rich because, you know, they managed to inherit a good house in a good suburb or they invested in derivatives or something. I don't even know what that is, but when I say that, I feel like I do know what that is. Anyway, they're not, it's not that kind of rich. 
It, often the Bible speaks quite negatively about the rich, but certainly not in the wisdom literature. And the reason is because the rich in the wisdom literature are rich because they've lived with the grain of God's life. They're people who knew when to plant and when to sow, and, and they actually got out of bed to do it. And they left some on the edge of their field for the poor, and they treated their employees well, and they, they, they nourished their family and brought them up in wisdom. And for that reason, it was some of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible are pictures of, of uh, rich men and women, of great um, character, who lived with the grain of God's world. And that's what we're seeing here, except they're on their feet, at the feet of someone on horseback, who's on the horseback slaves. And you think, oh, poor slave, conquered by a brute and you know, taken somewhere else for harsh labour. No, 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 no. In wisdom literature, that's not slavery. The slaves in wisdom literature are people who so mismanaged life in their local neighbourhood that finally they go, oh, damn, I'm going to have to go and work for my neighbour and you know, cook and clean for them because I've got nothing left. I've, I've, I've squandered everything except just is me. So that's how you end up a slave in the wisdom literature. So this picture is just a kind of reversal of good order, isn't it? The slave is in high position and the rich follow on foot like a slave. That, that's how the picture works. It's not a picture of, it's, it's just a picture of, of kind of revolutionary justice. You could read that another way, right? But no, it's not. This is a picture of desperate mismanagement. Uh, Robert Mugabe fell off his horse last week. About time. Is it okay to wish the, to celebrate the death of someone? I don't know. I think the Psalms do. And I'm singing a psalm. But when Robert Mugabe died, he died with some of the best doctors in the world gathered round his feet as his servants. Hmm, need I say more? But if you want more, you could read verse 17 to 20, which picks up this issue of fools in high places again. It says, gee, you want people who actually kind of have learnt good manners and know how to run stuff in high places? Because when you let the monkeys take over the kingdom... You know, it becomes the planet of the apes. It's verse 17 to 20. Laziness means the rafters sag, the house leaks. I don't know what to make of verse 19. I can't work out whether this is a mockery of feasts and wine and money or whether it's a bit of wisdom. You can work that out. But one thing's very clear. 17 to 20 show us not only the folly of fools in high places, but also the terror. Verse 20 says, don't even think about reviling a fool in a high place because there might be a bird on the wing who carries it to them. I remember driving down a street in Harare once about 50 k's an hour in the back seat with the windows half down doing a Robert Mugabe impression and my Zimbabwean friends telling me, hush, right, lest there was a bird on the wing. And I remember thinking, not, my goodness, that's terrifying. I remember thinking, that must have been a pretty good impression. <laughs> I was kind of proud of myself. Um, what a horror to be so fearful of rulers. What a horror. So fools in high places means high foolery, doesn't it? Thank God for wise rulers. Pray for them. And thank God we have the government of Jesus coming with the government laid on his shoulders. That one day as Woody Guthrie sung and prayed that we might even have Christ for president. Imagine that. Well, we will. We will. Uh, thirdly, fools are obvious. Fools get to high places. 
Outcomes in life aren't obvious unless you're a fool. Verse 8 to 15. Go with me here. This bit's a little bit weird, but go with me. Verse 8. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it's charmed, the charmer receives no fee. The point of this is that you can't predict your outcomes. You go to work in the morning, you don't know what will happen by the end of the day. You can use more strength and that will help a little. You can use a little skill and that will help a whole lot more. But even then you go to demolish your garage and a brown snake jumps out and bites you on the ear. You just, you just don't know what's going to happen. Who hasn't split logs only to find them almost split your back? Uh, one of my favourite writers got a chance to um, write in a wilderness part of America. If you ever go to see the wilderness in America, you can expect to see little log cabins full of city riders. The place is lousy with them, apparently. And, of course, in a little log cabin, you get a little log fire, and if you want fire in a log fire, you need to get logs, and the only way to get logs is to split them. And um, this favourite writer of mine, she kind of you know, went out to split logs in this wilderness part of America and discovered that there were neighbours and they pretty much came out of the trees to watch her split logs because they didn't have a comedy club in town. <laughs> but <laughs> she was kind of it for the next hour and they stood at a distance and kind of laughed. Um, and incompetence always looks funny, right? But ah, you don't have to be incompetent if things go wrong, do you? You can, be, you can be a very skilled person and end up on compo, right? You, things go wrong all the time. My wife um, knows this. In fact, she knows this to a degree of morbidity that I think is probably pathological, if there's any psychologists in the house. So much so that when we travel, she won't fly on the same plane as me. And I think this is a good diversification of risk. Is that what you say in the industry? I don't know. Um, so I like to point out to her, you can't predict anything. Maybe my plane will fly into yours. And... Um, I don't know what will happen. I also don't know whether my wife wants me on another plane for safety reasons or something else. I don't know. Who can say? Life is unpredictable. You can't tell a lot of things, but you can be sure that fools will be eaten by their own mouths. And that's what 12 to 15 say. 8 to 11 saying, man, even at your best, with your most skill, you don't know whether you're going to get busted in the head with a log but verse 12 to 14, point out, you can know stuff. When you're a fool, it'll end badly. For the words of the mouth from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. Well, no surprise then. At the end, what are they? Wicked madness. And what do they do? They multiply them. Who knows what's coming? Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? Well, we can know that the toil of fools wearies them and they don't know how to get to town. <laughs> we, we don't, in our competence, we don't know where life will go, but you can know that a fool will end in disaster. Now, I am a known word multiplier, so don't think these verses don't stand someone like me in fear. How about you? The words of fools are multiple disaster, and in a world where you don't know what will come of what, the one thing you can really rely on, death, taxes, and the outcome of foolishness will always be foolishness. What are we to do with this? I think um, it's pretty obvious where we should go with this passage, don't you? <laughs> the pictures are both large enough and largely funny enough for us to learn from them. It's like a cartoon, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious. 
It's both kind of cartoonishly loud, large and yet like devastatingly accurate and incisive. Like, I feel like I've been split open like a log, like, you know, the axe fell just in the crack. And yet it's like, it's like a funny cartoon. A clever chapter. Well, it's actually, we need to learn less from chapter 10 where everything's big and obvious and cartoonish and a little more from chapter 9 where it was very quiet and we might have missed it. Remember the thing we haven't been looking at for the last 10 minutes? It's the quiet words that poor man in the city said. And chapter 9 verse 15 makes it very clear what we ought to do. The quiet words of chapter 9, 17, sorry. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of the ruler of fools. Think, well, how, how can I get to this quiet man? How, do, how can I hear his words? Well, there's a reason why you haven't. And they're pointed out to us in verse 15. Because that man, we're told, was a poor man, and nobody remembered that poor man. Twice, we're told, the poor man was a poor man, and there's something in that. And what's in that is that no one esteemed him, for he was a poor man. They took his wisdom, and the city got saved, and then they just moved on. Why? For he was a poor man. Uh, I think it's sort of shocking, isn't it? Uh, The rich have been lauded in this passage, yes, but the poor are described as overlooked. It was the humility of this man, the quietness of his words, that both saved the city and guaranteed no one would learn a lesson from him. So there are lessons for us from him if we were prepared to go there. And the lesson may be that we may actually actively be missing out on great wisdom in our lives because we are unimpressed by wisdom bearers. Let me say that again. We may miss large chunks of beautiful wisdom in our life because we are personally unimpressed by real wisdom bearers. Oh, I think that's true. But positively, if we work against the grain of our culture and our basic instincts, we might yet uncover gold in wonderful places. Uh, So five quick learnings to finish, right? For heeding wisdom. And they will be quick. How do we heed the words, the quiet words of the wise? Well, we heed the quiet words of the wise, one, by listening to elders. Um, Our culture treats elders as dispensable. This is deeply unbiblical and deeply unwise. Last year, the older members of our church, and by older I mean anyone in the generation above me, pretty much everyone in a generation above me or the generations above that, um, sat in our lounge room, and I had, without scripting anything for each other, I heard the word invisible again and again. That people older than me, so we're talking pretty old now, right? Actually, we're really just talking quite young, aren't we? And yet people older than me, in our culture and in our church culture, often feel invisible. Some of you are probably thinking, yes, that's me. What a shocking thing. What a shocking thing. We have to work hard to regain an elder culture. I mean, it's the Bible. And it's wisdom. It's an evidence of the gospel at work in us, that the hearts of the sons are turned to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers turn to the sons. 
Um, that kids grow up learning from mums and grandmas the faith, like Lois and Eunice, like Timothy from Lois and Eunice. And the elder women treat younger women and exhort them. And elder culture in that Bible is just obvious. It doesn't need justification. But yeah, it's so against the grain of our culture. You know, I, I so against the grain of our culture that we're going to have to work hard to regain it. Tim Keller, who I think is a wise guy, wrote a book on wisdom recently. He said he came to think about how his parents hadn't really mentored him, or at least maybe that plus, he really had no expectation of being mentored by them. And in fact, how he had few elders who really spoke into his life overall, and he said he realised he had a lot of books and had even written a few of them on his shelf. But the wisdom train had left the station, and he realised he wasn't on it. It's not too late to chase the train. We must learn to see and to seek out and listen to wise elders. And, and I want to endeavour to be that kind of young leader. And I want us to endeavour to be that kind of church right now. Did some say Lynette's back at church? Hi, Lynette. Great to see you. That was a little encouragement. You might have noticed it. Listen to elders. We have some wise elders. Secondly, follow leaders with discernment. If you want to heed the quiet words of the wise, you'll need to follow leaders with discernment. Leaders are powerful. We miss this in Australia because we're egalitarians, and our egalitarianism plays a trick on us. Our egalitarianism means when we get to the water cooler, we dish out on our leaders, right? And at the water cooler, we think, I've dished out on my leader and I've done them a service because I've shown them that they're actually just like me. And I've reminded myself that I'm just like them. See, we're all equal. Wow, what a victory for justice, right? But what we haven't done is recognise, actually, for all the fact that we really are equal as people, we're really not equal in function and a leader has a role. And by, by kind of pretending that that is not the case, we actually make ourselves very prone to be led by poor leaders. Because instead of um, discerning leadership, we've just learnt to dish out on it. Right? This is not clever culture. This is dumb. And what, what our job, therefore, is not to criticise or bring down leaders, but to follow them with discernment, to weigh them and judge them and contribute to what they do with charity mixed with caution. To trust only as far as you can trust. Right? Um, that's true for any leader. It's true for me. It's true for the next leader after me. It's true for the leader of your small group. It's true for anyone. And at times, just to hold your post and be patient for the folly of a ruler to pass, as the proverb said. Because fools are sent to hide places, rogues run countries, money installs bosses, and they let loose people on churches at young ages with double degrees in arrogance. I've seen it with my two eyes. I've been in my two eyes. The point of this is you oughtn't make the life of leaders a pain and seek to bring them down in some kind of victory for Australian phony egalitarianism, but you should follow them with discernment. That's how we might heed the quiet words of the wise too. Sifting it out. Thirdly, we should heed the quiet words of the wise by seeking wisdom more than skill or technique or process. 
How I wish people had taught me this before now. Skill's good. Chapter 10, verse 10 makes that clear. But it's not everything. It's better than brute force, but it's not as good as wisdom. It's not unrelated to wisdom. You know, like if you're wise, you'll learn some skill. But wisdom's a bit bigger than skill. Wisdom's the knowledge of how to, when to apply skill in the right way at the right time in the right place. And wisdom's better. And wisdom's better than technique or process or competence. For without wisdom, technique and competence and process can be distorted and selfish and misused. We all know this. But skill mixed with wisdom brings rewards. And here's an interesting thing about our church. We work in very competent places, full of competency and technique and process. And when I make mistakes as a leader, and they come about often enough, uh, people will give me feedback about, about failures of technique and competence and skill. And uh, I will praise God the day when come on, someone comes and points out failures of wisdom. And there's a difference. And that sometimes they're very close, but there's a difference. And there's a certain faith we have as a culture and reflected in our church culture in technique and process and competence instead of prayer and a kind of timely word and encouragement and bearing with one another. And I, I think this is a, a real thing for us. But if we're to heed the quiet words of the wise, then we will seek wisdom and place a bit less faith in the skill, technique, process, competence kind of bucket. Fourthly, if we want to hear the quiet words of the wise, then we'll need to listen to each other sing. Think, where did that come from? The answer is Colossians 3, verse 14, which describes people singing in church not as a mixture of bad voices with soppy lyrics and hands held half high, but as a mixture of teaching, admonishment, and wisdom. Wisdom. When you sing in church, you teach and admonish. We teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Who would have thought it? Doesn't sound very wise to me, but I tell you what. If you stand next to a five-year-old in our church singing that the Father's arms are open wide, your heart should quake. Right? And, and God has made it so. And if you think that all the wisdom comes from the PA in a 25-minute grab every week, then you're, you're a poor person because you're missing the riches of God here, which is sitting right next to you. And... You don't even need to be that wise, like you're given a script every week by the church of God from, you know, from songwriters and poets and you know, crazy religious lunatics from all over the world that give you a script to sing that you might build one another's hearts up in the Lord. I mean, this is like, this is, rent, this is you know, wisdom rented by the hour. You don't even need to possess it. And yet God gives it to us that we might bear one another up before him. So let's stop tuning into sermons as if all wisdom came from the front and the pulpit, which it clearly doesn't. And um, listen to the five-year-old or the 50-year-old or the you know, 105-year-old singing the praises of God. We'll hear the quiet words of the wise. And finally, listen to elders, listen to leaders with discernment, seek wisdom more than skill and technique, listen to each other sing, and finally, listen to Jesus you knew what was going to be right. Listen to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus saved the city. He saved the city. I mean, he really did. <laughs> I mean, he's not the guy in this passage, right? But someone else. We don't know who that was. But we know a guy who saved the city. And he was like that guy. Do you know why he was like that guy? Because he saved the city. And you know what they did? 
the city threw him out. Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and looked over to Jerusalem and cried out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather you as a hen gather its chicks under its wings. But you were not willing. Did Jerusalem hear him? No. Did it heed him? No. They threw him out of the city. Caiaphas, the high priest, the ruler, the fool in high places, he said it's better than one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He thought he was very wise in saying that. You can hear it. It sounds good, doesn't it? It's a quotable quote. And the next day one man did die for the people with a wisdom that Caiaphas never understood. But they threw him out of the city to do it. They sent him down into Golgotha, near Gehenna, the rubbish tip, the hell of Jerusalem. And they despised him. They despised him. And the early Christians remembered this. And they didn't go, he's despicable. They said, we need to listen more. He's the guy that saved the city that threw him out. Like the writer of the Hebrews said this, listen to this. So Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. So listen, so let us then go to him, bearing the disgrace that he bore. You know, the hardest thing the wise will have to do in our day and in even more in days to come will be to heed the words of the poor man Jesus who people despise. Because the remnant love of Jesus in our culture is slowly disappearing. And at the moment, people want to keep Jesus but re- redefine his words. Very soon, they'll be happy just to throw Jesus on the rubbish heap too. It won't be that long. And, and for disciples, you're going to have to be people... We're going to have to be people who heed the quiet word of the wise man Jesus, who doesn't shout, doesn't raise his voice in the marketplace, but who went without a word to that rubbish heap, right? And whose words are gold. They're the words of the Lord. They're sweet as honey, but they're so easy to despise. And whether that's on, you know, kind of wealth or on relationships or whatever it is, Oh, it's going to be hard to stand with him because it's going to stink a little. And you're going to think, oh, maybe I stink a little. And the young guys in our church say they do. They say they are regarded and they feel at their universities and at their workplaces as if they are the moral evil. And so how important that if we are to heed the wise words, the quiet words of the wise, to know that we, might, we too might have to be despised like that poor man. We might too have to not kind of have a respectable Jesus in our big cities, but, but know what it is to be not at home in the city, that we might be at home with him, listening to him, being taught and instructed by him. Very words of God. For the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Father, the the, um, vision of our Lord is sweet to us. His words are precious. And his name is beautiful. Uh, Father, here we see things truly. Uh, Here we hear your voice. Here we know your ways. And for, for this moment, we dwell in the reality and the fullness and the beauty of all that and we give praise to our Lord in whom is all wisdom and glory and honour and power. We lift his name high. Amen.
Let's do that. Stand and lift his name high.